Hello and welcome to this episode of Thrill of the Hill. My name is Alec Perry and this is the Farm Advisory Service series where we discuss the hot topics impacting the farmed upland environment. In today's episode of Thrill of the Hill, I sit down with Paul Chapman, Senior Conservation Consultant at SAC Consulting. And I'm also joined by the new host of the Natural Capital Podcast, Rachel Smiley, who works as an environmental consultant, also with SAC Consulting. And we discuss natural capital, ecosystem services, and the opportunities for farmers and crofters across Scotland as we move into uncharted territory. Hello, Rachel and Paul, how are you both doing? Very good, thanks. Yeah, all good, thank you. Good, good. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate having you guys both on. I was wondering, for some of our listeners, they won't be familiar with uh, with who you both are. Can you just take a bit of a minute to give us an overview of who you are, what your recent projects have been, where you fall into the the environment team, or or Paul as a as a specialist? Um, yeah, I'll go first. I am a consultant in the environment team under the Food and Footprint at SAC Consulting. I've been here for a year now um, and the projects I work on are kind of natural capital focused, some um, water focused projects for the Farm Advisory Service and also as part of Fast Sounds, I host the Natural Capital podcast series. Fantastic. And Paul? I'm uh, Paul Chapman. I'm a conservation consultant with SEC Consulting. I'm based in Aberdeenshire. Um, I deliver advice on managing land primarily to benefit biodiversity, but also to deliver other benefits, uh, for example, improving water quality. I work quite a lot on agri-environment schemes and moorland management plans, that type of thing. And I've also been involved in a number of uh, larger projects dealing with natural capital, upland management, deer management, that type of thing. Excellent. So this is going to be a slightly different episode of Thrill of the Hill, um, uh, but we as uh, all three of us have been working on a Nature Scott natural capital trial at the beginning of this year. And I just wanted to bring you guys on and have a bit of a broad discussion on natural capital and where we think natural capital is going in terms of Scotland and farmer awareness for natural capital and where we think policy is going to go as well. Just to get us kicked off, I think historically natural capital has been one of these uh, buzzwords, one of these broad terms, and it's kind of difficult to get a grasp on what we actually mean when we use the term natural capital. Rachel, could you give us a a working definition or, or what you take from the term natural capital? I see natural capital as just Scotland's habitats. It's the land cover and what farmers and land managers are used to managing on a daily basis. So although the terminology is quite recent, I think what it's actually to do with isn't. And if we think of natural capital assets, and I think you can use assets and habitats quite interchangeably because the different type of natural capital assets are woodlands, grasslands, hedgerows. So Although, as I say, although it is a buzzword, 
I think farmers are are already invested in it and they do manage it. So there's a significant overlap with biodiversity conservation, for example? Yeah, definitely. Yep. I think um, it's important to to recognise as well that um, we're talking about it maybe in terms of biodiversity and conservation, but natural capital uh, also underpins our kind of food production in in the uplands. So um, the, the the grazing land that sheep production depends on, and in upland forestry, I guess timber production, that that type of thing. So um, it is partly about kind of biodiversity and conservation and environmental management, but it also underpins the more productive aspects of upland land management. So back to Rachel then. Rachel, when we're talking about natural capital um, and ecosystem services, how do the two of them overlap or or what's the interplay there? I think a lot of it is what just Paul said about the, the flow of benefits that we get from natural capital. So they can be characterized as ecosystem services. So although some of the services like pollination and habitat that natural capital supplies, there also is the supply of crops, supply of food, timber, water purification, water quality, um, water quality. Like it's quite an it's quite a long list of all the types of benefits that we get from the different types of natural capital, and they can be split up into the four different categories of provisioning, regulating, cultural and supporting services. Um, and I think to add on Paul's point that the cultural services from upland areas in Scotland are extremely important. And this is just like the recreation value we get from them and ecotourism and even just the aesthetical value of the habitats and the mosaics of the he- the heathlands and things. Yeah, the natural capital is the stock of resources. Um, uh, ecosystem services is, it, it, it is what flows from that, the benefits that flow from that. So, Rachel, I was wondering, can you name a couple of the ecosystem services that you think are important and how they kind of broadly fit into the categories that you mentioned earlier on? The categories, um, provisioning, regulating, cultural and supporting. Um, The first one, provisioning, I think is quite a common one. It's more easily to understand because that's your your materials. So you've mentioned timber. That's like a provisioning service, crops and also um, renewable energy as well. So that's a provisioning services that we can get from rivers, the hydro schemes and the renewable wind energy and things as well. Regulating services are probably the most appropriate is peatland, carbon sequestration, but also in regulating services is like water purification, pollination and clean air. The cultural services um, like recreation, inspiration and the ecotourism And then the supporting services is a bit more harder to define, but this takes in the processes that are involved in each of the different habitats in order to supply the 
regulating provisioning and cultural services. So it's like things like healthy soil and nutrient cycling and photosynthesis. So but, kind of your foundational kind of functions then? Yeah, so how the functions that are needed, obviously the keys in the name to support the other services. So Paul, a lot of uh, a lot of farmers, a lot of listeners to this podcast will be kind of broadly familiar with the pollinator story. They might even be familiar with some of the, the aspects of the water environment, mitigation of pollution. I'm just wondering, can you think of some wild ecosystem service that wouldn't initially be obvious to the listeners that is actually quite important? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, it's things like the sort of managing water and, and uh, you know, natural flood management, peatland, carbon sequestration are, are the sort of high profile uh, ecosystem services that we, we hear about a lot in, in the uplands. But there are other um, important ecosystem services that are perhaps slightly less well known, for example, um, uh, that, that there are issues, um, particularly in the context of, of uh, climate change and, and global warming, with um, water temperatures in our um, rivers and watercourses um, increasing, um, particularly in, in the summer, obviously. Um, that can be extremely damaging to uh, fish stocks. Uh, species like salmon are, um, are not well adapted to uh, living in warm water. Um, so uh, these kind of high temperatures in the water courses can be, be quite damaging to that. And of course, um, things like salmon stocks and uh, fishing is part of, is, is one of the uh, ecosystem services we get from the uplands. It's, it would probably fall under the under the cultural uh, services um, and uh, along with things like hunting and and tourism and recreation. Um, so, what we see is things like um, projects to plant trees along watercourses to provide shading. Uh, so by increasing woodland cover along watercourses, um, we are um, uh, improving the, 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 the woodland and the riparian habitat, the natural capital there is delivering this ecosystem uh, service of shading the watercourses and uh, hopefully reducing um, the water temperatures to benefit the fish. Do you know, somewhere in Scotland right now, Struan Candlish and Stuart Brabs are incredibly happy with the answer you've just given. We had the Ayrshire Rivers Trust on um, a previous episode this year, and they spent uh, quite a period of time talking about exactly that issue, the, the water temperature and the impacts of climate change. And like you say, the riparian planting of, of water margins. So no, that's, uh, that's uh, going to be well received. Rachel, do we know the value of some of these ecosystem services? A lot of farmers will be curious to know whether or not a financial figure could be placed on some of these services. I think there are uh, values given to them, like national values of how much these services contribute to the economy. Um, and I think it's confuses me sometimes because they are dependent on so many things. Just take uh, the obvious example of the peatland restoration and the carbon sequestration that it does. There was a study that showed if we restore maybe, I think it was 80% of our peatland, it has £191 million 
benefit. But if you do this by 2027, that's... But if you do it between 2039 and 2050, it dramatically drops to 1,600 million. So you're losing, quick maths, maybe 70, 70 um, million pounds off the value just by the year that you do the restoration. So I think there's a lot of different values floating around that sometimes makes it a bit off-putting for farmers or landowners to get engaged in the valuing of the services. Uh, sorry, presumably those figures that you just cited there will change and, and will reduce because of the the increase of the impact of, of climate change on, on that habitat. Yep. Is that, yeah. Yep. And, but there, I think people are doing more research and every day more papers are coming out and one thing to note is the value does increase the earlier that you do the, the interventions and assess your natural capital and put measures in it's to do it sooner is better mm -hmm. <laughs> and the value increases <laughs> yeah um I think, I mean, the, the the Scottish government does try at a sort of national level, I think, to, to try and put a value on uh, natural capital through uh, something called the natural capital accounts. Um, that, that maybe extends a bit wider than the sort of things we're talking about here because it includes things like oil and gas, which are technically part of the natural capital as well, um, although not, not a renewable part of, of the natural capital. Um, and so, so they do. Um, they, they do try to value this and, and, and value it in terms of the sort of annual flows of benefits, um, which I, I think um, are somewhere in the region of kind of fifteen, sixteen billion pounds a year. And then they also try to assess the the, the sort of capital value of the the natural asset, the natural asset stock. Um, and that's kind of valued at over 200 billion across Scotland. I mean, as I say, obviously that includes things like oil and gas reserves. But um, but yeah, so there are these attempts to um, put a value on it, but it's difficult, I think, to, to, to do that. And at a farm level, we maybe need to um, have a little bit more detailed uh, sort of assessment to, to, to value some of these things. And I think... Going back to the my statement about there being some questions around the value, some of it's a lot easier to value. It's not all as complicated as things like carbon sequestration and water filtration. I think they're the hard ones to put a value on. But there has been some great values placed on the services such as pollination, where you can kind of quantify it by crops or coastal wetlands by like replacement method of what it would cost to have hard engineering versus coastal wetlands. And I think wetlands were between 50 and 76 million per year, the value that we get from them, with pollination around 43 million per year. So being able to compare or use market values or replacement costs is quite a good way to get the value of things as well. And some of these habitats, Paul, that we rely on in terms of getting our, our ecosystem services will have been historically mismanaged or damaged or on the way out. Can you just 
talk a little bit about the kind of landscape scale change that we've seen in Scotland historically and why that's a problem and why farmers, particularly in the uplands, should be uh, should be invested in, in kind of reversing that change? Yeah, well, obviously that's a, a pretty big topic and can be a controversial one, so maybe be careful what I say. But, um, but yeah, I, um, I mean, historically, a lot of the uplands um, have been managed uh, for um, grazing, either by uh, sheep or by deer. Um, other areas have been managed for um, grouse. Um, and then, of course, um, we've also had upland forestry coming into, into the mix um, as well. Um, so we've got all these these kind of competing managements, and and, and the, the sort of they're all underpinned by the natural capital of the uplands. Um, but but yeah, the, the, there are potential conflicts and tensions between all of these things. So, um, for example, grazing if it's at a at, at a high level, um, it can become somewhat unsustainable and have impacts on other ecosystem services that are delivered from the uplands. So, um, for example, um, very high deer numbers can be damaging to peatland uh, through trampling, um, and that then affects the ecosystem services the peatlands um, deliver. Um, uh, grazing tends to inhibit uh, woodland regeneration um, in the uplands, and woodlands can um, have an important role in, in various ways. The, the example I gave of, of shading of watercourses, but also um, they can help in uh, natural flood management by slowing the flow of water off, off the hills and reducing flooding risk um, downstream. Uh, so upland land managers, whether they're farms or estates or whatever, have to look at all these kind of competing ecosystem services and, and benefits that come from it and, and try to find a balance that um, that, that works for them where um, the, you may be the, 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 the cultural or um, provisioning services provided by, um, by, by the natural capital, whether that's um, food production in terms of um, sheep um, or um, cultural um, uh, benefits in terms of uh, sort of uh, sporting use of estates uh, for, for, for hunting and so on, and balance that with the regulating services that wider society benefits from, so the natural flood management, the carbon sequestration, and try to find a way to, to, to get those to, to balance. Rachel, I know we've talked a little bit about water in the podcast already, but I just wanted to hone in on this We've just come through a really hot, unusually hot summer in Scotland. Climate change is going to exacerbate that. And I wanted to get your thoughts in terms of the natural capital story. Do you think investment in the farmed upland environment, particularly in the retention of water in the uplands, could benefit uh, Scotland in terms of getting through the drought conditions that we're now seeing? Well, yeah, definitely. Um, keeping the water on farm and dealing with it as high up in the catchment as possible um, would definitely benefit the water problems that we're having. And it's you don't need to directly go to your natural capital and think, right, I need to um, manage it for water quantity, doing things like carbon sequestration with your peatland that also has the water quantity benefits on your farm as well so it's all interlinked 
And it might not even be tasks like peatland restoration. You can also slow down the flow of water just by maybe reprofiling your the riparian zones. And something which we've been doing work on um, is 3D buffer strips. So kind of looking at your riparian zones and trying to slow the flow of water going into the river just by maybe creating some ditches or increasing the infiltration into the ground. And that in turn increases vegetation, shades the river that Paul was talking about as well. So it's kind of one action can do many things that you might not already be doing something to help with it. And Rachel, just before we move on to a slightly different topic, do you have a, a favourite ecosystem service, something that maybe you think is a bit underappreciated in Scotland or something that you want to draw some more attention to? Mine is probably water quantity or water quality. And because I like the ecosystem services that are supplied by the edges of a farm that or hedgerows or the riparian zones or wild bird seed margins is the the areas that are kind of least productive but they still have like they can give a lot more value if you just change certain management approaches to them yeah, it's difficult to pick a favorite one uh, i mean i guess maybe a bit boring but mine may be also um focus on water and, and some of the issues of natural flood management that we've already spoken about. Um, I, I live on Deeside in Aberdeenshire and um, back in 2015 we were um, affected by um, some quite bad flooding, um, well, very bad flooding uh, that um, uh, <clears throat> that involved a lot of um, very rapid runoff from, from the hills. So I've, I've, you know, I've been quite interested in, in looking at how um, upland habitats can be managed to to try and slow that flow of water off off the land. But I'm also interested in in this whole issue that I've already spoken about about balancing the the sort of competing needs of of, of different ecosystem services in the uplands. Okay, so Paul, we know that Scottish government have set targets for climate change reduction in agriculture by 2030. If I remember right, it's something like a 23% reduction in emissions. And we also know that they have declared a biodiversity crisis and they've made uh, made uh, a great awareness to, to the fact that Scot uh, Scotland's farmers and landowners need to um, have this transformational change for biodiversity in Scotland. I was wondering if you could maybe discuss a little bit about how natural capital intersects with those two dual priorities for Scottish government. Yeah, well, in terms of um, biodiversity, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Scottish um, government uh, through Nature Scott, the, the uh, government agency for, for uh, nature conservation, um, has a thing called the Scotland's Biodiversity Strategy, and uh, we're just actually at the end of the, the consultation period for for the next strategy, um, uh, leading up to to twenty thirty and beyond, even as far as twenty forty five, um, and that follows on from previous strategies that have been running for for a number of years, and yeah, I mean the whole um, 
ecosystem approach has been at the absolute core of that. So yeah, the 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 um, uh, this whole sort of natural capital ecosystem services approach um, is is at the heart of of that biodiversity strategy and the way things are viewed. It's all about um, restoring ecosystems and the benefits they deliver. Um, in terms of of carbon, I mean, obviously, and emissions. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the the key one there in terms of natural capital is is probably the peatland. Um, uh, restoration work that is um, uh, going on throughout Scotland now uh, um, and probably will for many years to come. There's a lot of work to be done there. Um, the uh, peatlands that have been degraded in the past um, are obviously uh, both a, a source of, of carbon emissions. The, the carbon that's locked up there is being lost to the atmosphere and at the same time the, the damaged peatlands are not Doing what as much as they could do to to sequester carbon out of the atmosphere. So there's a kind of double whammy there. So so I think peatland restoration is is the key sort of uh, natural capital um, element that that interacts with with the the uh, sort of um, carbon emission strategy. Yeah, I agree with um, Paul that there are always going to be residual emissions and especially in the agricultural sector, but across Scotland and all sectors. And they are looking to the land use sector to sequester these emissions. And the more ways that we can do this while also restoring nature and increasing biodiversity, um, I think a lot of the answers are going to be from the farming sector, especially the upland habitats as well when you're talking about the water filtration as well as a knock-on effect from the peatland restoration that they're getting asked to do i think well yeah the, fo the focus at the moment in terms of carbon emissions is certainly on on peatlands just because of the massive amounts of carbon stored in there we, we also maybe need to remember things like um uh, woodland creation as a, as a potential um uh, natural capital approach to to uh, carbon sequestration, and there's a lot of interest now as well in in the sort of non peatland soils and the role they may play in in carbon sequestration. Because although they're not purely organic soils, um, uh, under the right management, um, our, our kind of mineral soils can also uh, contain a high amount of organic matter, which um, potentially locks away carbon as well. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually, because we know a little bit about the the woodland carbon code now and how that plays into the into to the woodland story. We've heard about the the peatland carbon code and how that's going to restore peatland in Scotland, and there is this move now to get some kind of soil carbon code. And the, I mean, the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust is is actively working on a hedgerow carbon code as well. So there's a really interesting kind of development of different carbon markets um, coming on that that farmers could, in theory, uh, make use of. And I also think, is it worth saying that we are in a kind of strange transition period? We are coming to the end of what is the current SRDP and looking forward, it looks like we're going to move into more of an outcomes-based um, environmental kind of approach. Would that be fair to say, Paul? Um, yeah, there's certainly a lot of interest in, in, in looking at, at that. And 
I think um, we're not entirely clear what the future direction of travel in terms of agri-environment support involves, but um, uh, but certainly there's the. I think there's. It's fair to say there's there's a degree of interest in the potential for um, uh, natural capital um, to um, be a component of, of agri-environment and, and even potentially more general agricultural support systems in the future. Um, so, so there may there may be a, an element of conditionality on payments based on uh, the condition of, uh, of natural capital assets on the farm. But uh, I think we're a little way away from that now, but that, that is certainly an area that, that seems to be being investigated. And Rachel, we've talked a little bit about the value of some of these ecosystem services and how they play into the natural capital story, but who decides the value of an ecosystem service? I think, as I was saying, there is, because there's so many different services, some are, it's easier to quantify the value of some than others. So I was speaking about pollination and we can talk about crops and we can do the coastal wetlands, we can do what it would cost to have hard engineering versus coastal engineering as a softer approach. So there is some calculations that are done by environmental economists, but in terms of the benefits that come from services like water filtration, it's hard to quantify as so many people benefit from areas in Scotland and the uplands, their land filtered in water throughout the catchment and yes we can kind of do a replacement cost method about a water treatment facility but the water quality services that they are providing impacts fisheries it impacts the drinking quality it impacts recreation people going to lochs so to get that one value of what that one service is is quite difficult and it I'm not sure if we're able to put a, an actual value on it at the moment. So natural capital at farm level, what is the consensus on whether it is nature or, or nurture? And by that, I mean, are farmers at the mercy of the location and the kind of land that they have, or is it possible to build natural capital into your business? I think it depends on the different types of natural capital. Um, obviously, yarn and if peatland, you can't exactly um, implement that. But when I was talking about the different types of natural capital, such as hedgerows or the riparian zones, you can implement or you can enhance areas of your farm to increase the ecosystem services that come from your natural capital. I mean, you can plant woodlands, so you're creating natural capital there. But I think it's the enhancement and increasing the quality of your natural capital that is really important and really achievable and doesn't take as much effort as planting a, a new forest or a new woodland or changing the land use altogether, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And Rachel, what advice would you give to a farmer or a crofter in Scotland who has an interest in natural capital and wants a kind of baseline? How, how would you go about doing that? 
First of all, it would be to listen to the Natural Capital podcast series. Um, secondly, there's so many resources out there, but some point more to the general concept. You can go to the Thriving Natural Capital Centre. They have a lot of information. As, as, as we've heard, certain natural capital assets, you either have them or you don't, peatland being a, an obvious example. Um, uh, but there, there are um, certain natural capital assets that you could um, create or improve um, on your farm. So obviously woodland creation would be one option. In a, in a lowland farm situation, things like field margins and hedges and those sorts of things are, are all things that um, could be created on the farm. And, and for all natural capital assets, it is, it is really about the, the condition of them and improving the condition. And I think in, in most cases, um, it's a case of looking at what assets do we have, what's their condition, and um, what can we do to improve that. And I think most people would find um, things that could be improved. One of the things that occurred to me, Paul, earlier on in the podcast, and I didn't want to derail the conversation, was, is there a discussion to be had around species-rich grassland in Scotland? I mean, I've, I've seen some figures suggesting that Scotland has lost up to 98% of its native grassland pasture. Is there potential for farmers in Scotland to build that back in? How difficult is it to establish those kind of swords? Um, well, it's certainly possible to um, create uh, or try to recreate uh, species-rich grassland. It, it probably takes a relatively short time to, to sow the, the, the appropriate mixtures and so on, but to, probably to get the full benefits of uh, th th that we would see from a, a sort of natural or semi-natural um, species-rich grassland would take a lot longer in terms of um, the development of the, the the soil biota and all that sort of stuff, and the the, the um, all all the activity that's going on there um, beneath the soil surface. Um, so um, yeah, and agri environment schemes have supported um, recreation of, of species rich grassland for a long time, and it it, it requires care to and, and proper management to do it. Um, uh, correctly, you have to choose the right sort of site somewhere that's not too fertile already, um, um, and that there's a lot of care involved in management. It, it, if if that's not taken, then it, it tends not to be successful. But um, but yeah, with the, with the appropriate management and site selection, um, you can quite quickly produce a botanically diverse sward. But but it does take a long time to. Um, to get the full benefits of a semi-natural grassland. So we shouldn't forget about the existing semi-natural species-rich grasslands that we have. We, we need to kind of um, value those and protect those um, uh, and, and try to maintain them in, um, in good condition, which um, in most cases requires uh, some sort of appropriate level of, of uh, sensitive grazing management. So the three of us completed a series of natural capital uh, trials with over 50 farms uh, across Scotland. 
uh, over the winter and spring of this year. And the calculator was uh, developed with Cumulus Consulting and uh, the trial was carried out with the support of Nature Scott. So I wonder if we could just take five minutes to kind of reflect on what we think that we have learned from the process and whether or not having a natural capital calculator is something that would be of use to farmers in Scotland. Yeah, um, that was an exciting project to work on. You and Paul had more face time with the farmers, but for what the ones that I spoke to um, is where I learned that the term natural capital isn't that new. It's not, they are aware of the habitats that they've got on farm. They are doing a lot for the environment. We are just coming along and terming it as something different and then just trying to assess what they have. And of the 50 participants, the feedback that we got was, it was very good. They were engaged with the process and the findings that they got from the template, some have already started to implement them on their farm. There's some that had fences and since having a visit and going through the process, they have replaced their fences with um, hedgerows to give some shelter and, uh, to their sheep because they're on a very windy croft and it's increasing biodiversity as it's linking up pockets of woodland that are adjacent to their uh, croft as well. So they are engaged with the process and they're already implementing things from it, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it was a really interesting project to, to, to be involved with. And I visited several farms, um, uh, obviously carrying out an assessment of what habitats were were there on the farm and speaking to the, the farmer um, about the, the condition of those and trying to assess the condition. And uh, to be fair, it's, it's a, a challenging thing to try to do to assess the condition of the natural capital assets on a farm and to come up with a because essentially what it was producing was a kind of a score at the end of the day for the farm and to come up with a system uh, that produces a score that then you can use comparably between quite di different types of farms, you know, from lowland arable through big estates to crofts and, and upland farms and, and that type of thing. It, it, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's challenging, um, but it's, it's, it's good to, to see how how it can be done and um and yeah i mean the 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 feedback from the farmers face to face was was very positive in general so um and a lot of them were quite interested because i mean they were obviously seeing that this kind of assessment of natural capital you know potentially down the line as i, I said earlier we, we don't know exactly how things are going to to pan out but potentially this type of thing to some degree might um, form the basis of part of the financial support for, for farms in the future. Uh, so a, a lot of them were, were quite interested in, in that and, and also looking at what they could do because we were assessing the, 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 and scoring the condition of the um, the natural capital assets now. Um, a lot of them were interested in, in seeing what they could do, um, as Rachel says, right now to actually improve some of the, the, the lower scoring features, thinking, you know, down, you know, obviously that's a benefit to them and their business, but also with one eye to potential future support systems. Because, I, I mean, a lot of 
improvements to natural capital don't necessarily happen overnight. Um, it can take a while to to um, uh, improve the condition of some, some types of assets. So there was a lot of interest in, in doing that. I think you're right, Paul. Uh, one of the things that really stuck out to me with the calculator was the need to get this kind of fixed figure at the end of the process by which farmers could measure themselves over time. But actually, when we went out on farm, I know I'll just give one example. Um, I ended up auditing a rather large estate. And one of the big takeaways from the results of the audit was you know, they had previously thought that their hill upland environment was in pretty good condition. But actually going out and surveying it, we realized that there were some pretty key factors in terms of the natural capital on the hill that, you know, with some minor changes and an implementation plan, you could see some really dramatic improvements in the kind of overall condition of the, the estate. Um, and I think that's the that's the real value in in having a process like that. It will be really interesting to, to see how things progress and, and I'm sure we'll, we'll all watch it with, with great interest. Rachel, I maybe should have mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, but I'm not actually the only host on this podcast today. And uh, obviously you've just got up and off the ground with the Natural Capital podcast for the Farm Advisory Service. I wanted to give you a bit of a, an opportunity to give us an overview of what we can expect in your own series and the kind of topics that you're going to be discussing with the, with the Natural Capital podcast. So uh, do you want to take a chance just to explain to the listeners um, the kind of topics that you're going to be covering and why people should check in and listen? It's a new podcast that started this year. So far, episode one is out and it's an introduction to natural capital. So if you want to just learn a little bit more, you can hear me speak to Dr. Hannah Rudman at the Thriving Natural Capital Centre. And she just discusses the importance of natural capital in Scotland. And it's, it's a good listen. Um, in terms of coming up, we each episode focuses on a kind of natural capital asset we have an episode on water environments, on peatlands, and we also have an episode on Scotland's rainforests, which is very interesting. And we have a green financing episode with Professor Mark Reid coming up as well. So that will be good to listen to if you're interested in, to hear all the different options about natural capital financing. Brilliant. No, that sounds great. Um, I was joking with the uh, the producer earlier on and uh, before we before we started recording the podcast that really this should be billed as a kind of crossover event. So uh, it's good to good to have you on and, and hopefully we can uh, we can catch up with you in the future and, and hear how the podcast series goes. Rachel, Paul, thanks very much for coming on the podcast today. Really enjoyed the opportunity to sit down and have a chat with you about natural capital. The last question I always ask guests who come on the podcast is, is there anything that you want to spotlight or, or highlight anything that you've seen in the industry recently that you think is particularly good practice that more people should be paying attention to? Anything that you want to, to spotlight? I suppose for me, it's um, I have mentioned it a few times. When people think about natural capital, they might think about large schemes that they need to implement on their land. It's going to upset their processes. But 
as I mentioned before, sometimes it's just as simple as reprofiling your riparian zones or I mentioned 3D buffer strips is adding trees into the riparian zones and also looking at the subsurface flows, so increasing infiltration and providing the services of water filtration from maybe pollution pathways that are subsurface and it's not taking any more extra land up or maybe minimal land up on your farm or on your hill and it's providing so many more benefits than maybe standard buffer strips that are just vegetated. Yeah, at the, at the risk of sounding repetitive, yeah, kind of my mind goes to the sort of natural flood management sort of side of things. And, and we're seeing a lot of projects now or several projects um, across Scotland looking at um, uh, sort of um, uh, rerouting watercourses and 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 um, undoing sort of past straightening and um, canalisation works um, to to slow the flow of of water and allow water to flood out over um, uh, the floodplain a little bit um, and that maybe doesn't necessarily uh, go down well with some some farmers who who maybe don't like to see. Um, you know, maybe reversing historical Im improvements from an agricultural viewpoint, but I think there's there's quite a lot of areas where where that sort of work can be done without significantly impacting on agricultural um, uh, uh, production. And um, and again, in in kind of upland areas, I see um, quite a few estates um, putting in. Um, you know, woodland native woodland creation schemes on on steep slopes in in, in upland areas. Um, uh, you know, we we um, we hear a lot about increasing woodland cover in in the uplands for carbon capture for um, natural flood management and so on. But um, I think without necessarily going down the full you know rewilding route or whatever, um, there's a lot of potential for for that sort of work to, to be done in, in upland areas on, on steep slopes and maybe relatively uh, difficult to, 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 to use for, for, for agriculture and so on, maybe less productive areas. I just wanted to add as well that when sometimes we think of natural capital, we think of the flow of benefits. And when we talk about them, we talk about biodiversity and further down the catchment and carbon sequestration. So these benefits are on like national scales or catchment scales, but there also is benefits directly to the farm business for implementing a natural capital approach. And when you mentioned the topic of maybe water scarcity, and we talked about peatlands and it's holding back the flow of water and that can make like businesses more resilient to climate change. So it can, and I need to remember, does have impacts to the farm business as well and it's as, as well as rest of the catchment. Perfect. No, that, that's great. Um, well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast today, guys. It's been really good to sit down and have a chat with you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Thrill the Hill. If natural capital is of particular interest to you, you can find the Natural Capital podcast hosted by Rachel Smiley in the show notes below. In the first episode, Rachel is joined by Dr. Hannah Rudman, who discusses how digital and data innovations can help the natural capital sector to thrive.